Hello and welcome to the first of the C21 podcasts from Real Screen in New Orleans this week. We're really pleased that it's moved from Washington DC to New Orleans and we've been taking more than unfair advantage of that move. I've got three UK producers with me today and three US producers with me tomorrow. We'll go around the table and introduce them one by one. Stephen McQuillan from Icon Films. You've had some news this week. You've got a new job. Why don't you start by telling us a bit about that? Okay, yes, I am the creative director at Icon Films, which um, I've moved from the role of head of factual to creative director. My colleague Laura Marshall has become CEO, and uh, Harry Marshall, who founded the company, is now um, chairman. What does that mean practically? It means that on a day-to-day basis I am looking after the production and development of the company, um, Harry is taking the helicopter view of the of the um, company and and what we're doing. Laura has uh, moved up to the CEO role, which is um, which is largely what she was doing before. But I think with Harry, the idea is that he he really wants to focus on big environmental projects, and he wants to keep that kind of. It's quite hard when you're in the day to day of the of the business and you're you're in the daily grind to, to get an overview and to get a, a, a big strategic vision. So um, that's what hopefully Harry will do. Harry fancies some time off. Sam, <laughs> TV's own Sam Barcroft. Um, your company is now called, well, tell us, it's a, there's been a big rebrand and some really interesting hires this week as well. So tell us a bit about that. Hello, Clive. Um, thanks for having me. Um, yes, this week we've announced the uh, rebrand of the company uh, where we've taken our different and distinct business units and rolled them all up into one uh, Barcroft Studios. Uh, so the objective of that is really to make sure that we're responding to our clients who want uh, the different things that we do all available at once uh, in the same teams and um, it's quite exciting for us that um, uh, we've kind of worked out how to position ourselves for what we think is a really exciting moment in the trade. You've brought some uh, some interesting execs on board as well that's been uh, been announced this week. Can you uh, run us through who's uh, who's coming into the company? Yeah, well, well Lizzie Wingham's joined us. Um, Lizzie was formerly the deputy editor at uh, BBC Three, and um, she's really been brought in to look at our internal production and assist our big team of in-house uh, producers and editors and leaders um, to um, improve the editorial insights and quality that we're providing. Um, we've brought in uh, Danny, um, who's our new head of development, who's going to be uh, focusing on external development. So we're now running two tracks of development. One is to grow new series that go straight to digital on our, across our own networks. Another one is uh, looking at uh, developing just for our clients um, in television and brands. And then thirdly, um, we've brought in uh, Georgie Air, who's um, going to help us with the new uh, opportunities around uh, making content directly for distributors, which we've done quite a lot of in the last few years. And of course, we've got Louise Murray, who's come in for, as head of production as well. Um, and she's like our best new grown-up. Um, okay. Because every company needs a grown-up, let's be honest. And um, uh, she comes from wall to wall and um, as a, a force of nature in the very best way for us. Yeah. And uh, Will Hanrahan from First Look TV, a new, a new face on our podcast. So 
let's have your elevator pitch for your for your company and your your shows. Introduce yourself. Well, I just won't use elevators. I, I've had a real <laughs> fetish about not going into an elevator for so long now. So can we have an escalator pitch yes, and just go up slowly? Yeah. Um, well, we, we, we kind of, we've got an unusual specialism, which is investigation. And, and when, when your kind of niche is investigative, you've got to work really, really hard to A, a sell what you're investigating and B, to make it. And uh, our content, all of it goes out in the States. So I come annually, biannually, just to sort of press the flesh with the guys who pick up our content. Um, and, and, it's, and it's been great for us this week uh, for that reason alone. But it's somewhat ironic that I've come all this way to find out that we've just got three commissions back in London. So it's a bit frustrating, really, that my elevator <laughs> is in the wrong city and the wrong continent. But at the same time, it's nice to be here. Yes. Well, we've had a nice week, right? <laughs> well, watching everybody else having a good time has been really fantastic for me. Okay. Well, the less said about that, the better. <laughs> um, so a couple of years ago at Real Screening, I mean, apart from the fact it was in Washington, D.C. and it was cold, seemed to be a really downbeat atmosphere to real screen people were talking about production companies going to the wall they were talking about margins being squeezed and that was basically the theme of the week there was a lot of moaning and pessimism around dare I venture to suggest that it feels a little bit more optimistic around the factual and unscripted industry at the moment are you are you all going to tell me that I'm wrong it certainly feels more upbeat here and I don't know what New Orleans has to do with that. Everybody seems very excited to be here, and it's a new place, and there's many more people here. I've noticed there was a... I think 12 months ago we were sitting talking about it, and it was very thinly attended. Um, You do wonder whether that's just the location change in the sense that everybody... And it's a much more fun place, let's let's face it. I do wonder if it stays in New Orleans, if next year and the year after we're going to slide, because I don't think there are any underlying themes in factual television that have particularly changed from my point of view um, I, I don't know, I think there's a combination Stephen, I think you're right, I think uh, what to do with a conference that's been held in a massive ice rink for the last um, however many years move it to, you know, across between Las Vegas and Baltimore, it's not a bad idea And um, but I think uh, from my perspective it's all about cycles and I think uh, it's been quite a tough year in America um, for cable uh, because Discovery really haven't been buying as much and um, a, a, a number. there's been a real... A, a shift I think in buying patterns and therefore I think it's been quite hard for a lot of producers who haven't really been able to get the new green lights that they've been wanting and therefore I think that's been going on for a while really as the industry adapts to the Netflix effect but I think I went through the similar thing in print some years ago and in uh, national newspapers and they've become these are generally L-shaped changes you know there's a there's a kind of a fall down a cliff but then there becomes a, a bottoming out of that where the deal the demand and supply just re-establishes itself a little bit and people realise they still need a certain amount of brand new shows every year they still need um, top quality content and actually they better get on with getting some more of it ordered so they can so where are we on the L? I think we. I think actually, where we are at the moment is there's there are less out new hours being bought, but there's now kind of re-established some kind of cadence where people are back buying fairly regularly again. They're just being more careful about what they buy, more considered about it, and they're looking for lower price points quite often or, or clever ways of managing it. They are looking for lower price points, and I think that they're looking for different models. You know, can you bring us something from this model or that model? I, I mean, I've noticed that one particular net that Discovery, which in our we do a lot of true crime and investigation a couple of three years ago discovery would not countenance 
not buying original and buying for top dollar, maybe four years ago. Now they're saying, well, is there a way we can keep that standard up whereby we don't quite give you as much and you can maybe bring something else in exchange for extra rights? That I've noticed. But I think you've nailed it to an extent, Sam. I still think there's some how do we cope with Netflix going on. And I'm hearing that a lot wherever I go. But I, I do think there's a different buzz this year. And I think it is down to the fact that it's in New Orleans. I think last year was just one Washington too many. We'd all been frozen to I, I can't remember being as cold ever in my life <laughs> two years ago. And I think that really has hit a chord. I don't think there'll be as many here next year. I'm not seeing that much novelty uh, t- compared to other real screens that I've been to. When someone who's been in the away end at Oldham and Sunderland says that they've never been as cold before in their life, that's that's really quite that's a, that's a strong statement. I just think that <laughs> Oldham and Sunderland, well, certainly Oldham is not a place I've ever been to because okay. you know when, when you know when you're in the elite as a football fan, uh, albeit uh, temporarily probably. No, but I, I mean you get the point. I mean yeah. it just got a bit grey, Washington, in every sense of the yeah, word. Exactly. So I think that's this has brought a bit of judge. So also sorry to say, if uh, we have had a real change of the guard in terms of buying patterns. And, and buying frequency and I think it's very difficult to go somewhere very cold and expensive to be told that someone doesn't want to buy your show I think if somebody says do you want to spend about the same amount of money and come to an awesome party town where it's 20 degrees warmer just an easier yes mm-hmm. isn't it so I think you're probably right the, the general trend is probably that it's harder to win shows mm-hmm. but at the same time if you get to have a fantastic time around really lovely people whilst you still have the chance to sell shows then it's a great offer isn't it so I have heard that uh, that rights position softening from the US cable nets because they haven't got as much money to spend and they still want the same quality of content. That, since I've been at C21, has always been sort of floated as a bit of a pipe dream. Obviously, you guys are UK producers, you have terms of trade. But we seem to have been talking about that in America for like eight years and everyone's just told me that, oh, it's a pipe dream, it'll never happen, it'll never happen. Is it genuinely, are they, are they softening that position? They're definitely softening, but it... it I think the problem comes with how much they're looking to find elsewhere. They're dropping, they're talking about dropping the tariffs considerably if they're opening up the rights. And I just don't know how feasible it'll be if they're taking 100 grand off the the fee for the show for you to get that in the international market. And that's, you know, I heard a story this week of a a series that is doing well, but for the renewal, they're going to drop the the tariff by 100 grand. And they've said you can go and get international rights, but that's going to be quite tricky to fill that gap so I don't know I don't know whether it's going to make for better shows especially you know? in a renewal because yeah. uh, people don't want to come in on board later than season one yeah. really if you're a distributor you want to own the title from the beginning you don't really want to come in later down the line mm-hmm. so look I think I think that we know that there are some networks that have said very clearly they now can cannot fully fund more than a handful of shows every year and they expect to uh, co-produce the majority of their original hours you know and um, and I think that's welcome news in some respects to people that um, want to try and exploit broader rights positions and, um, and multiple revenue opportunities but it's quite tough for US producers who are used to just being paid to make a show you know so um, and used to a one deal one signature type of arrangement um, and that is I think it's I think it just means we all have to do a lot more commercial work to um, to win the same amount of editorial work and we, most of us would rather be making shows than uh, worrying about business models mm-hmm. really. I think that I, I agree with everything that's been said I think the totemic shows that they, they have I don't think they are 
sharing those rights. I think they're keeping those and they're jealously guarding them. It's the off-shoulder stuff and the volume stuff. I think they're prepared to do this because they've, they've got to fill the same hours. And, and how are they going to do that when they've got fewer people watching it? I, I love your letter analogy. I actually think that it's got a way to go down further. I think this time next year they'll be saying it's 120 grand less and 130 grand less. And I think that we'll hit the bottom at some point. I don't think we're there yet. Wow. So how, how do you uh, how do you cope like with the business model in that situation? Is it about just having multiple revenue streams? You can't just be producers that are producing you know six part factual series. You have to have revenue coming from here, there, and everywhere. I, presumably, I think you've got to grow up and, and say that the the, te- the the television widgets that that or the the digits, if you like, um, which we just used to rely on the the networks to kind of fund, that's gone. And now I think we're going to be relying less and less on them to... They're going to be contributors. Yeah. We've got to make up the difference. I think that's what I'm hearing. I wish it wasn't like that, but I think it is like that. But to, to your point, Sam, I, I think that that's a shame because really, ultimately, we're creatives and we're trying to make a great product. And I don't particularly want to get down and dirty with every commercial deal, but we are going to have to. Mm. That's the Barcroft model from the start has been multiple revenue streams across multiple platforms. They, you feeling future-proofed against this? To some extent, yes. But um, but actually, that was from necessity rather than from choice. It's much nicer to walk into a room, um, you know, work up an idea with somebody and then be told you can go off and make it. You know, that's actually much more pleasurable than having to dig out multiple rights positions. And so... Um, you know, our model does benefit from a few ways of earning extra money. I think the problem comes, as Stephen was saying, when uh, the tariffs and the opportunity just don't roll up properly. And I think we probably maybe will have a moment of reassessment in that space from certain networks. Um, it is tough, and what will happen is that um, there will just become less supply mm-hmm. um, into the system, which may actually then put prices up conversely so I don't know maybe it's a a short term readjustment Um, I still think to Will's point networks more than ever need to protect their hits and need to invest in their hits because networks are becoming defined by one or two shows literally and and are planning everything around those one or two nights of a week and Mm. and so I think the challenge comes uh, if you're trying to fill a schedule um, that's very difficult to do Um, and the SVODs don't have to fill a schedule so uh, they have they do, they have to create many less hours in order to uh, enchant their customers as long as they've got those few shows. Um, that's why it's so tough for broadcasters at the moment. I saw Nancy Daniels speak, and she was talking about this very point that you know it's it's um, it's apples and oranges. They're not that they really. I'd say if you're in Nancy Daniels' shoes or you're in Courtney Monroe's shoes, and you're looking at those streamers and thinking. You know, when they announced that 45 million people watched Bird Box or whatever it was, you know, in a week, you must sit there and think, what, what, you know, what do we have to do? What are we, you know, what, what are we going to do that's going to bring that size of audience? They don't even have to worry about duration. They don't need to worry about. They just stick it up there, and everybody is going to it. And this kind of we, again a year ago, we were talking about this sort of existential crisis in in television. If you're running a network, I think what somebody like Discovery is doing, they're just going very safe, you know, they're going back to the roots, they're not taking any risks. And I I feel across the board there is risk aversion happening with the cable networks. You know, they're they're they they can't risk a failure, so they're just gonna go back to 
you know, it's survival, it's chance. And it's, it's correct. That's the correct thing to do on a commercial basis. Look at MTV. You know, they, they tried a huge editorial regeneration under Sean Atkins, you know, and to really change their whole editorial tone and approach. But they, they reversed out of that quite quickly. They then brought in uh, Chris to run the channel, who bought Friends two years ago which everyone one thought was absolutely ridiculous why do you bring a show back that's 20 years old to try and appeal to young people and it was a massive hit and um and the network has had a brilliant time ever since because he's gone back to um shows that are safe secure and mtv kind of fact and heart reality show bubblegum tv it's a master stroke the same has happened in music the same has happened in print we don't editorialize it out through innovation just double down on what your core audience audience want and and that's what you should do if you're a cable company so it's horrible for us as producers I was just going to say I was just going to say how is that for you guys there's, as there's, one, there's one exception that, that is I was quite intrigued by the ID go kind of model which is to say you know if, if you are young and, and you like this content we'll give you some more stuff and we've actually got separate revenue streams to commission for ID go and so ID go is kind of become, it's an SVOD on its own really yeah. and I think that's clever um, so, taking that to one, I think they should all be doing that. The cables. You don't have to. Netflix doesn't own the method of being Netflix, and I think that's a way of overcoming it. We should possibly be thinking that way too, as producers, having our own straight to, uh, effectively straight to delivery, if you will, kind of options. Mm. It is another one of those events where everybody's obviously talking about the effect of the SVODs without them necessarily being here to, you know, present it for themselves. A lot of the most talked about shows, the most talked about show on the plane over here was the Fire Festival documentary. It's factual, but it's it's on Netflix. I just wonder, is that good for all the production companies? Because the, the production companies that are in and producing for Netflix and the streamers, that's great for them. They, you know, they get these shows, they get these budgets and whatever, but the bread and butter, the rest of the industry, all these production companies, they... Are they seeing the benefit of this or are they still scratching around with the cable nets who are struggling in the face of it? I just wonder, that Netflix effect, how, how big is that effect for the, for the everyday production company? I don't know. We, we talk endlessly about this in the development team, as you'd imagine, and we look enviously at people like Sam who have uh, landed a Netflix show and think, you know, what is, what is the voodoo that, that you need to create that thing that, yeah... And, and you know, then we're going to ask him in a minute. Yeah, I'll get that. <laughs> I'll take notes. Um, but then you watch something like Sunderland Till I Die, mm. and it's really classic, Obstock. You know, there's there's no huge innovation in that show. You see something like the Bross documentary, which caught again the the Netflix vibe, didn't it? It caught that sense of there kind of being a viral thing around it. There was lots of there was lots of gifts that came from it. There was. So I don't know. We, we we feel like it's trying to catch a, you know, catch catch something in the air. It's it's really hard tonally to think what you pitch to the streamers to, to just catch that mood. But I'm hoping Sam's going to explain exactly how you do it to the entire television industry. You will mm-hmm. explain. It, it is awkward, isn't it? Because Sunderland Till I Die would never have been. You, no, no one would give you on BBC Two an eight, eight, an eight part eight, eight part series on Sunderland Football Club. But I think that reflects really badly on on the British broadcasters. That that was always going to be a good series to get. I've been trying for years to get Everton to give us access to 
that football club and I actually have an in at Everton in fact I've got several and it's impossible to get the manager's sign off so the producers did I think a magnificent job of getting cameras in the treatment room cameras in the dressing room yeah. and actually that should have been picked up by a BBC or an ITV or a Channel 4 because but it never would have I don't think it even would now would it? well it has it was actually it was made it was made years ago that program it was called The Club and the, you know and and we made a series called The Club for the BBC. You can, you can get away if you sell it as a soap. But what I think was wonderful about Netflix and, and their decision is that they clearly were not prejudiced against A, that it was a championship club, and B, that it was soccer, because they saw it as a soap. And they saw it, which is what it is, and, it, and a soap with real jeopardy. I think that was just very clever commissioning, um, really. I also think, you know, hats off to the guys who made it. They did a cracking job. But I, you know, t- t- let's—I still haven't heard from Sam yes. about how I'm we're all, we're all we're all excited. <laughs> well, this has been great. I've got to go. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, I think um, I think uh, the reality is at the moment is um, in unscripted. There's still not hardly any commissioning happened from the Fangs. Um, when you compare it to the amount of commissioning that's happened in uh, from the BB, from the BBC or the UK um, broadcast factual uh, broadcasters from the UK, the US cable nets, um, from you know the national broadcasters across Europe. You know, if we work out the number of hours compared to the SBOD original number of hours um, that have been commissioned, it's completely dwarfed um, by re- what we call old school commissioning. So we were very lucky to get a show away um, in a round of commissions, you know, and I'm very proud of the show, but I agree it may, you know, there, there For the people that don't know, can you just... Yeah, sure. Um, we, we had a 12-part original series called Amazing Interiors um, that uh, landed on Netflix this August, um, just gone in 2018. I think that the reality of any of this is um, that uh, we are all hoping that the brilliant performance of SVODs comes in to offer us the same amount of market opportunity that we currently enjoy from uh, linear broadcasters or that you know, um, it catches up the decline um, from linear broadcasting. But the reality is when you have a model that goes from a nationalised model to a global model, um, they only need the same amount of content as a small amount of national. They're just offering it much more globally. So there's, we, if, if the one was to replace the other, 95% of the commissioning would disappear overnight. So we all have to hope that there's a mixed model for many years to come. And I personally believe that the only long-term model that works is a mixed model because the SVODs benefit greatly from reduced costs of um, second window um, acquisitions from uh, shows made by linear studios. So I think we're all going to be fine um, and there's going to be a lot of... But there will probably be a bit of consolidation and what I've noticed at Real Screen this time is there are less... Um, freelancers wearing cowboy hats that happen to run a car wash in North Dakota coming to see if they can land I've their first. Few. Have you? <laughs> yes. I've seen two. I've seen two. Well, I've seen was... two cowboy hats. Whether they run a car wash in North Dakota? So a, I can't give too much away. There's a crazy lady from a state just just came up on spec because she's decided to open a film commissioning unit in her state. Thought she'd get lots of commissions. Started pitching in one of the 30-minute sessions. It was the most hysterical thing. I, but, but going back, the S, I couldn't do without Netflix because Netflix buy second windows and everything. We do and we factor that in what i'm interested in is is there a podcast sort of variety version in our television industry because radio as we all know was dead done for was over it's the most booming part of the media now yeah i think the mixed model will yield something that we haven't thought of yet i don't which i don't know what that is but i think 
what will emerge is mixed legacy commissions, SVOD commissions, SVOD second windows. The question for me is, what's the third thing? And I, Sam will know the answer. And he'll probably solve Brexit too. So, nobody can do that. That second window thing's interesting because it's the originals that create the buzz, but no one, I, that's the first time I've ever heard oh, someone no, say that that second window is really they've, important. They've bought just about 40 hours now in the last 18 months, Netflix, from us, and we, we, we were able to factor that in and spend it before we got the money. So, it was, it was, it was, it was we didn't know what was happening. That was the other great thing. It's just sort of, it came through the ether. You know. I mean, I think there are the direct-to-consumer piece is the missing link at the moment, and for us that's been great. You know, this year has been a breakthrough for us on that basis. Um, from the advertising revenue we get from sharing our original content via social media platforms, and um, that's transformed our business. Um, honestly, it's been a bit of a uh, eureka moment for us after many years of investing in funding our own content for those platforms. And so that is, I think, really, uh, really opportune. But I think it takes time and long-term investment, which a lot of indies won't necessarily want to do, having had a much more uh, cash-flowed uh, existence so far. Yeah. So I do think that there are new models coming, but I think they'll be hard for existing successful companies to embrace in the short term because they just don't look as, um, as beneficial as uh, existing models. Okay, well, guys, thanks very much for your, for your insight, and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your week in New Orleans. We uh, will be back with a second podcast, a more U.S. focus with U.S. Produ- uh, production companies uh, tomorrow. Uh, but in the meantime, you can keep up with all the developments from Real Screen and elsewhere in the television industry uh, by following C21 Media uh, online, on Twitter, and on Facebook. 